Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you this morning uh, for who you are. Thank you that you are this great and almighty God who rules over the universe, who rules over all powers, all dominions, all things of this world. You are a God who is in control and who is all-powerful, and you can do anything. And when we think of a world full of sin, we think, what hope is there for the world of sin? And yet, you are able, and you have done something about it in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for him. Thank you that at the cross, he there defeated sin, defeated Satan, defeated death, so that in him, all who believe can know new life, can know forgiveness of sins. We have a glorious gospel that you've given to us to proclaim, Lord. And yet often we find it scary. We find it difficult. We face much opposition. But we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us, to go with us, and to work through us to change many lives for you. Lord, help us this morning as we think through this passage, as we think through how you have helped us by your Spirit to go out and proclaim your word, to think about what the role of the Holy Spirit is as we speak and live for you. Bless us this morning, we pray. Amen. So we are well into the second half now of this summer series in John 13 to 17, looking at living fruitful lives for the Father. We've been thinking about what Jesus has been teaching his disciples in preparation for him leaving going back to the Father, and of them heading out into the world to live and speak for him. The disciples are afraid, they're concerned for a number of reasons. They've been told that they've got to go out to serve him, but they'll have the Holy Spirit with them. Last week, we looked at the encouragement that as they go to bear fruit, they go connected to the vine, they're in Christ, they're with him, they go to live a life of love, but they do it with with his power in Jesus' name, through prayer as they head out for him. But as we think about mission, as we think about evangelism, as we think about speaking about Jesus, for us, as we apply these things to ourselves, we too, as we head out into the world to take this same gospel, we, like the disciples, can often be troubled and afraid. I'm sure you would agree with that. We're troubled because although, yes, there is much fruit for the gospel and many people here and around the world are becoming Christians, there's also much difficulty and hardship. There's persecution. And for some, there is death for the sake of Jesus. The disciples have experienced opposition from the religious leaders with Jesus while he's been on earth. And now he's leaving, he's preparing them for what will be a lot more persecution. He says in verse 20, chapter 15, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. All this I've told you so that when it happens, you'll not fall away, Jesus says in the beginning of chapter 16. He tells them this, so when it happens, they'll remember that Jesus warned them that it was going to happen. And so two millennia of church history and church growth and the gospel spreading across the whole world, we've seen great salvation, great revivals, but also we've seen much suffering, much persecution. And the reality of the rejection that we may get from our gospel proclamation sometimes hinders us. 
It stops us from speaking up with our own friends and family around us. When asked, when Christians are asked, what hinders you from, from doing evangelism? One of the most common answers is fear. We fear being rejected by people. We fear people defeating us in an argument and in conversation. We fear them laughing and mocking at us because of the way that we live. And we fear that little us, what possibly difference can we make in the world around us? We know that when we proclaim the gospel, there will be both negative and positive results. But there is always a response. So this morning, I want us to I want us to delve beneath the surface. I want us to see kind of behind the scenes, as it were, as to what the Holy Spirit is doing when we live and speak for Jesus. I want us to think about the Holy Spirit's work through the church, because it's through the church that God does his work, bringing conviction of sin, bringing repentance and faith in him. And so this morning, I just want us to be encouraged. I want us to, to be in wonder of God, what he does through us, to give thanks that it's not down to us to save people, but that he is at work in us. We're going to focus in on verses 8 to 11 of chapter 16, those lovely difficult and debated verses. They're going to be the basis of what we're going to think about, and hopefully as we look at that, it will make sense of the wider context around us. So let's look at verse 8 particularly as we head in. Verse 8. When he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So this um, word phrase that in the, the original language the NIV has translated to prove wrong it means a little bit more than that. So to prove wrong, but also to convict and to convince. To lead somewhere. Not just to say, I'm going to convince you you're wrong, but hopefully that it will lead you to a change. So one commentator has summed it up as saying, Jesus is saying, to show someone their sin and to summons them to repentance. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is to show them their sin, but to lead them to repentance. Some scholars have likened these verses as, uh, image in a courtroom. You have the defendant, he's standing in the dock. Okay, and a charge is brought against him. The charge in this case is sin. Jesus tells us in chapter 15, verse 22 and 24, that sin is rejecting Jesus. It's unbelief. The charge is brought in the light of the standard that the defendant is supposed to keep or, or to adhere to, which is Christ's righteousness. And they either deny this, and they certainly fall short of it. And then you have the judgment that's brought, the verdict that's passed. The world has judged Jesus and has crucified him, but actually Christ's judgment is at the cross, where he defeats sin, where he defeats Satan, and therefore there's condemnation upon Satan and all those who side with him. Now, if that sounds a bit complicated... It does to me too. But hopefully, as we go through, things will become a bit clearer. So, firstly, as we speak for Jesus, as Christians, as we speak for Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sin. As you read through John's Gospel and John's writings, when he talks about the world, 
he's talking about uh, the created moral order that is against God. So all those who stand in opposition to God and to Jesus Christ. And of course, before we were Christians, if you're a Christian, that included us. We were against God. We were of the world. And we lived for the world in opposition to him. And we'll see, as we, as you look through John's Gospel, you see that Jesus' mission as he goes out into the world is to proclaim himself, to reveal the Father to the world. We've seen that already in, in our series in chapter 14. Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. I am in him and he is in me. Jesus has made some great claims in John's Gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. I am the light of the world, chapter 8. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. Jesus has come. He is the Savior. He's the Messiah. And only through him, through his death and resurrection, can anyone ever come to the Father. That's been his gospel. That's been his revelation. And Jesus, through his his claims, has backed them up with signs, with miracles, with healings and deliverances, showing that he is himself from the Father. Let's take a, a quick peek at chapter 9. You can turn to it if you want to, just as an example of what Jesus is doing and opposition that he faces. Jesus has healed a man that's been born blind. This man confesses openly that it was Jesus who had healed him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who are, have already made up their mind about who Jesus is, they've rejected him. Although they have been told already what happened, they ask this man again, how did Jesus open your eyes? So listen to the dialogue from verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are followers of this. You are, sorry, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man said, oh, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to a, the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. There the religious leaders faced with the evidence right before their eyes reject Jesus. They're guilty of sin, as John says in, in chapter 15, verse 24. If, they, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, i.e. healing someone born blind, then they would not be guilty of sin, rejecting Jesus. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have rejected both me and my Father. Jesus judges those religious leaders at the end of chapter 9, verse 41. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. What greater sin is there than rejecting Jesus? 
Because by rejecting Jesus, you reject the only possible way that you can be saved from your sin. And of course, today in our world, people continue to rebel and reject Jesus and turn away from him. They dismiss who he is, who he's, the claims he makes, and his power. People are happy to say that Jesus was a good man. He was a great leader in history. He was a good moral teacher. Some will claim he's a prophet. Some will say he's a blasphemer. Some will say he is an evil man. But he is not the Son of God. He is not the Savior. He's not the Savior of the world because the world says it doesn't need a Savior. I have no sin to be saved from. It's the role of the church to proclaim the gospel, to continue to proclaim the revelation that Jesus proclaimed when he was on earth. And as we do, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin to prove to them that Jesus is who he says he is. And his claims and his powers are true and genuine. In the autumn and the spring terms here at Morland Road Church, we do Christianity Explored. Christianity Explored is a, is a course that's designed to take people through the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, in Mark's account of his life. And during the course, you are exposed to Jesus. You meet him. You see his actions. You hear his words. You see his claims. You read from eyewitnesses about who he is and what he's done. And you're left with a challenge. Do you believe who this man said he was? And wonderfully, through courses like Christianity Explored, and of course, many, many other ways that the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit works, and people see. Their eyes are open to who Jesus really is. They see his claims, they see his power, and they're convinced that who of who Jesus is. And they turn from unbelief, and they put trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit works. As we speak for Jesus, he convicts the world of sin. But then he also convicts the world of righteousness. So as we live for Jesus and speak for him, he convicts the world of righteousness. So when Jesus says he'll prove the world to be wrong about righteousness, he means to prove them wrong about their understanding of what righteousness is, of their standard of righteousness. That actually their standard is wrong. To prove them wrong about what they thought Jesus' righteousness was about, particularly. To show that they're well short of what God demands. The religious leaders rejected Jesus because they didn't agree with his standard of righteousness. He doesn't keep the Sabbath like we do, therefore we reject him. He's not from God. They denied his powers, his claims. They even said he was of the devil. This man is not God because he doesn't match to our level of righteousness. And it's, it's quite ironic because Jesus didn't fit their righteousness and so they crucified him. And yet it's through his death in his crucifixion that because he lived the only ever perfect life, he was able to stand in our place at the cross to take the sin of the world for us. So that when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he was able to stand before the Father perfectly, just vindicated, proving that actually his righteousness is what God requires. The world 
today has its own standard of righteousness. It either says that our standard of righteousness should be accepted by God, or if the world doesn't believe in God, then it says that we live by a righteousness that is good and acceptable to us for our own happiness and for our own clear conscience. We know because to call somebody a sinner today is very un-PC. It's rude and arrogant. It's offensive and it's judgmental. People don't like it because you're saying that their level of righteousness is wrong. It's not good enough. They'll say, well, I am righteous. I live a good life because I'm not like that other person or I'm not like those other people. I don't murder. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I'm a good person. But the gospel says, maybe, but what to what standard of righteousness are you comparing yourself to? There was a street evangelist or street evangelists in America who go around the streets and they ask people a series of questions. They say, have you ever told a lie? And everyone says, well, yeah, of course I've told a lie. Then he asked them, have you ever stolen anything? And some say, well, maybe a pen from work or a, a cookie from the cookie jar. Then they're asked, have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? And some say, well, yes, but what harm can that do? Then they ask, then they ask have you ever shouted at somebody, call them a fool or call them an idiot? Well, yeah, but it's not life-threatening, they will reply. Then the evangelist says that because God's standard of righteousness is perfection, it means that by his definition, you are a lying, thieving, murdering, adulteress. It's Americans. We don't have the guts to do that. That's what I mean. The problem is that the world has it the wrong standard of righteousness. Because we compare it to someone who's worse than us, or, or we can compare ourselves to the social norm, but not to God's standard, which is perfection. God's standard is characterized by perfect love. Perfect love for him, and perfect love for the world. And of course, we all fall short of that every day. It's the kind of love that only Jesus displayed. The love that he displayed ultimately at the cross, as he humbled himself and died there for sinners. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not pointing my finger at the world, saying that their righteousness is bad and we are, we've got it fine, because the truth of the matter is, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness through the church, partly through us and how we live, through us, by the Spirit's help, living at Jesus' righteousness as we live loving one another, as we live sacrificially, becoming more righteous by the power of the Spirit, the world will see that and will be convicted by it, that and the gospel. I was speaking to an older gentleman just last week, and he was telling me about the, the difficulty it has been looking after his elderly father in the years before he died. He spoke of the cost and the sacrifice of the time that it requires to be with someone day and night looking after them. Someone who is not only physically weak, but someone who is also, also bitter and stubborn. 
But sadly, he told me about the attitude of his family and his friends who said, just just put him in a home and, and let them care about him. And he was reflecting upon society. I, I don't think this guy is a Christian. He certainly would claim to be religious, but I'm not sure he's truly a Christian. But he says that that's my observation of the world today. We're just so selfish and so self-absorbed. He knows that I'm a Christian church leader, and so we talked about what the church should do about this and what Christians should do in terms of being an example for Christ. And he said, you know, if the church really lived like this, lived a life of love, it would make a difference. People would see it because it's just so countercultural. So if we live, if we think less about ourselves, if we live less for ourselves, then the world will see a righteousness that is better than them. Not that we want them to live up to that righteousness, but we want them to see that their lack of righteousness, which will lead them to see their sin, which will lead them to see Jesus and his righteousness and their need for him. It was the false righteousness of the Jewish leaders that nailed Jesus to the cross. And it's at the cross that perfect righteousness met perfect justice. And so Jesus, leaving to go to be with the Father, he's able to stand there and intercede on behalf of all those who run to Jesus for salvation, who see their failing unrighteousness and cling to Jesus. As we speak for Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of its unbelief, of its rejection of who he is and what he's done. As we speak and live for him, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness, showing that its, its righteousness is not good enough and will never be good enough, and that Christ's righteousness is perfect, and he is the only one who can stand in our place before the Father to bring us to him. And finally, we suffer for Jesus as we suffer for Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage we read, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The world hates Christ. doesn't just dislike him or is indifferent to him. The world hates him. And therefore the world hates us if we follow Christ. The world hates Christ because Jesus has passed a judgment, the standard of righteousness that they fail. And so their response to him is, yes, to not believe in him, to reject him, but to hate him. Disciples and Christians throughout history face this same opposition the same persecution from the world. Jesus says, if you'd belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. 
But as Christians, we are not of the world. We've been chosen out of the world. And so you're hated and you're persecuted just like Jesus. And so Jesus, in, in this passage that he's talking about, he is preparing his disciples and he's preparing us as believers today to, to be ready for suffering, to tell us that it's going to come, to not be surprised about it. For the disciples, it meant that they would be put out of the synagogue and killed. As you read through the book of Acts, you see this come to fruition, don't you? You see uh, the disciples, right from chapter 3, being arrested and dragged and, and questioned, told not to preach in Jesus' name. They're beaten up. They're thrown out. They're accused of following this Jesus. They're accused of blasphemy. And then you get to chapter 7, and things get worse for the disciples. And you've got Stephen a man who was faithful and he was preaching the gospel. And as he was preaching and as he was showing the religious leaders that their righteousness was not right before God, they hated him and they dragged him out of the town and they stoned him to death. Christians in those early days, suffering and dying, and Christians, for the sake of the gospel, have been giving their lives ever since. Persecution in our own country at this time is, of course, not as bad as it is in many countries of the world. But it is on the increase. You do see it. You hear stories. You've probably experienced it at some level yourselves with your friends and family. Christians are, are accused of being hateful, being prejudiced, or being immoral. Why? Because... They compare us to their own standard of righteousness, their new definition of what it means to be right. Christianity is removed from the classroom. It's taken from our streets. It's silenced in our hospitals. People speak false lies or lies about it. It's called evil and dangerous by our leading atheists. And it may well not be long until we find ourselves being put in prison for preaching Christ and for preaching his standards and living to his standards. The world has passed its judgment. You must be killed. And this is what we fear as Christians. Perhaps not the death part at the moment in this country, but we fear the rejection. We fear people not liking us because we like to be liked. But Jesus his whole point here isn't to encourage us to trust in him and to see what he is doing in us. He's prepared the disciples for suffering. It's going to come, it's going to happen, but it's not a waste of time. It has a purpose, and God actually will use it greatly. And we saw that in Acts. As you read through Acts, it's actually because of persecution that the gospel spreads out further from Jerusalem. After Stephen's death, some do. They disperse, not in fear, but to go out and proclaim the gospel in the surrounding areas and nations. Think of Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as we better know him as. He was one who stood there when Stephen was being stoned. He approved it. He felt it his job from God, as Jesus predicted in chapter 16. People will think they are serving God by killing Christians. He went out and he arrested Christians and he persecuted them and he killed them, ridding them of, ridding the world of Christians because they were against 
what his level of righteousness was. But even this man, the worst of sinners, as we heard earlier on in the service, as he claimed about himself, it wasn't long after Stephen's death that Saul met Jesus. And he was convicted by the Holy Spirit of his sin, of his unbelief of who this man Jesus was, because he saw him. He was convicted of his false righteousness because actually his, what he thought the right way to live was, was he wasn't good enough and he needed Jesus. He was convicted of his false judgment and how he had treated Jesus and how he had treated his people. And for him it led to repentance wonderfully. And God has been doing that throughout history. Jesus hasn't appeared to everybody like that throughout history, but in one way he has, through his word, through the lives of his people as they've lived and displayed Jesus. People have seen him and met him and they've been convicted of sin and their righteousness and their judgment. And God has used suffering and persecution to grow his church. Just this week, I randomly read an article in the Telegraph. I googled something, and this came up. An article in the Telegraph. This headline is this, China on course to become world's most Christian nation within 15 years. Okay, this should be interesting. The article describes how millions of Chinese people are attending churches throughout China, churches that have been reopened since the death of their communist leader, Chairman Mao. Let me quote something from the article. It says, officially, the the People's Republic of China is an atheist country. But that is changing changing fast. As many of its 1.3 billion citizens seek meaning and spiritual comfort that neither communism nor capitalism seem to have supplied. Chairman Mao claimed to have eliminated religion. But less than four decades later, a Chinese um, sociology professor has predicted that China is now poised to become not only the world's number one economy, but also its most numerous Christian nation. We'll wait and see if that happens. And we'll pray that it does happen. But why is all this happening? Well, if you delve deeper, if you look at what's been happening in China, you'll see it's because of persecution. You'll see it's because Christians have suffered. Men and women have given their lives literally for the cause of the gospel. They've been taken from their families. They've been imprisoned for years and years. They've had to meet in secret, and many still do. People have died so that the church would thrive in China. God has blessed the nation in many ways. People have turned from their sin, from their false judgment, turning to Christ. Jesus died on the cross as the world judged him. But really what he was doing was bearing the judgment himself, the judgment of God, the judgment of sin, the judgment that humanity rightly deserves. And as he bled and died to take away sin, he rose and defeated Satan, the prince of this world, the one who now stands condemned 
as verse 11 says. The one who is blind in the eyes of unbelievers, the true source of false righteousness, the true source of false judgment that all those who don't follow Christ follow. They follow Satan ultimately. And because he stands condemned, they too stand condemned because they have not believed in the Lord Jesus. And so as we conclude this morning, friends, are you someone who would not call themselves a Christian? Are you someone who, as John says, is of the world, follows the world, follows yourself? I hope this morning, and I pray that as you go on hearing about this man, Jesus, that you will really see who he is. You'll hear his claims, you'll see his signs. I pray that you'll see that whatever standard of righteousness you live up to, it's not good enough. Because God's standard is perfection. And we'll never be able to get to him through our own righteousness. Because it's rubbish. But you need to run to Jesus. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death so we could be brought to the Father and know him and saved from our sins. And then Christians, as we head out into the world to take this wonderful message, as we head out into the world to live lives like Christ, for Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit, let's pray, as we looked at last week, because we can't do it in our own effort. Let's pray. Let's pray that through our lives, through our weaknesses, through our lack of righteousness, that even through those things, the Holy Spirit would convict the world of its sin, of its righteousness, and of its judgment. But not only that, but it would lead to many, many, many people coming to know Christ. Let's pray those things now. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his help. Thank you for him dwelling within us, as we've looked at in this series so far. We're united to you by him, that he goes with us as we head out into the world to live and speak for you. And we pray that you would help us to do just that, to speak well of you, to speak the truths of who you are, of what you've done, to call people to repentance. We pray that our lives would live up to the message we proclaim, that we would not be hypocrites. Father, forgive us for the many times that we are and help us, help us to live a life of love. And we pray that as we, as Christians, love one another, and we pray as we seek to love the world, that the world would see, the world would be convicted, and the world would come to you. We pray that you would save many. And we pray, Lord, as we suffer to varying degrees and in different ways, that you would help us not to fear suffering. We pray that suffering wouldn't stand in our way, but that we'd know that if we suffer, we're blessed. We'll know that if we suffer, it's because God is at work. We pray that through our sufferings, you would be glorified. People would see Christ. They'd see his suffering. They trust in him. And this morning, I pray for anyone here who has not put their trust in you, that you would, by your Spirit, and they'd know 
that conviction this morning. Well, they wouldn't just know it, but they would do something about it. And they'd come, they'd turn from their sin and put their trust in you. We pray all these things for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.